Good morning to the faithful renters. Those left behind from the men's canoe trip, from family vacations, from work obligations, and the hustle and bustle that summer can bring. I'm so grateful that each and every one of you are here today. As I look across this room and I see all the men that are left in church this morning and decide not to go on the men's canoe trip, I get it. I understand. There is no way that you can replace a Sunday morning worship service with time playing in the water. I totally understand it. I would be sure to tell Belsky, Ryan, and Dan, whenever they return, that it was the God-fearing men who saved the church this morning. I'm grateful to share God's work with you this morning. Since Ryan is on this men's canoe trip, I get the honor and privilege of pulpit filling today. For those of you that do not know me, my name is Zach. I'm the associate pastor here at Harvest. And again, I'm grateful for this opportunity to share God's word with you this morning. Go ahead and make your way in your Bibles to the book of James. That is where we are going to be spending the majority of our time today. Although for you note-takers, be ready because I'm going to be doing a lot of quick practices. I'd like to touch base on something that Ryan explained to you a few months ago. He told you that we were in a weight loss competition together. So there were three people in this weight loss competition. It was Ryan, myself, and then Benny, which is Ryan's dad. Now, I feel like he was honest in telling you what happened because he lost. He did lose. That is what happened. Did I mention that he lost? <laughs> Anyways, we were in this weight loss competition together, and afterwards, I feel like Ryan wasn't as transparent as he could have been. Now, I don't know if that was the saving self base or perhaps the saving me base as well, but allow me to be the person that's very open, direct, and honest with you this morning. Ryan and I both were whooped in a weight loss competition by a man that is twice my age. He didn't beat us by a little bit, he beat us by a lot. Now, many of you have known me for several years, and you know that I'm very efficient at losing weight. I've done it several times. However, what I'm not efficient at is keeping the weight off. Maybe some of you guys can relate to that. So I've done all the diets, guys. I've done Whole30, I've done low-carb, no-carb, low-fat. I've just monitored what I'm eating. Uh, and I can tell you that they are all effective. Does that surprise you? Because they all have the same very basic premise in mind. Calories in versus calories out. Meaning that if I am consuming more calories than I can burn, I will gain weight. If I can burn more calories than what I consume, I will lose weight. It's pretty simple. So if I have all this knowledge, and I would argue that I have more knowledge on this topic than Benny Lowry, how did I lose? Well, put very simply, Benny put into practice the knowledge that we all knew. So while Ryan and I were being enticed by all these delicious sweets, whenever we go out to eat, we would pass on the salad and instead have burgers and fries. Benny was remaining true to his diet. By the way, it wasn't healthy by my standards. It's eating something like eight or nine eggs a day, and that's it. That's like under a thousand calories. Doesn't seem healthy, but it doesn't matter. He was in it to win it, and that is exactly what he did. He took the premise of calories in versus calories out, and he beat it right and right. Simply put, he put the knowledge into practice. Knowledge, when it is not put into practice, is worthless. It is only when we act on what we believe that we can see the effects. This is one of James' central arguments in his letter. If you believe in the knowledge that you have received, it produces faith. And faith should have a response, otherwise it is a dead faith. It is important for us to realize that this letter that James wrote was likely written to Jewish Christians. How do we know that? Well, first and foremost, it has a lot of language used in it that's similar to Jewish heritage. Also, he has a lot of references to Old Testament law. That wouldn't make a lot of sense to Gentiles, would it? 
But to the Jews who had a grounding Old Testament law, um, they understood what he was saying and the points that he was trying to make. The Jews believed that their righteousness was dependent upon their ability to follow the law and to offer sacrifices whenever they would fail. Christ points the idea that they were unable to follow the law completely, and if you fail at just one portion of it, you fail at it all. And they needed a greater permanent sacrifice rather than continual offerings, and Christ became that sacrifice for them. So when the Jews realized that their salvation was no longer dependent upon their ability to keep the law, they threw all their works to the side. They punched their meal, t- they punched their meal ticket, they rode the wave of grace, they became stagnant. So essentially they accepted Christ and there was no growth after that. And maybe as I'm talking about this, you find yourself in that position this morning. You're asking yourself, if doing works accomplishes nothing, then what's the point of doing works? Why should we work? James reveals in his letter that this mentality is a mistake. Works are a byproduct of faith rather than an opposition. Works enhances faith, it does not hinder it. It enhances our faith because when we act on our faith, we can see what God can powerfully do through us and around us. But if we are not willing to act on our faith, how can we ever hope to experience the changing nature of God? Before we dive into God's Word, I want to have a disclaimer at the beginning of this service for a few reasons. The first is that this sermon is not going to argue against the fact that it is our faith in Christ that saves us, not works. Ephesians 2, 8-9 states, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that none may boast. This sermon is not going to argue that fact. Rather, the sermon's purpose is to point out where works actually fits in with our Christian law. And the second part of this disclaimer is this is a challenging and convicting topic. For those of you that are convicted after this sermon, I pray that it motivates change rather than producing anger. I'm simply expositing scripture. I am not pointing the finger at anybody this morning. Nevertheless, I do hope that God's word and the Holy Spirit have their way in this place this morning. So let's dive into God's word now that we've got the disclaimer before you. Starting in chapter 1, verse 19. Read along with me. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, who perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The language used here, what James says, is to be a doer of the word. Not do X, Y, Z. There's not a finish line in mind. This implies a change of nature, a continual activity, a pursuit. We have to have a different nature to be a doer. What causes this change in nature? Well, but simply the gospel does. Verse 21 commands us to put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. In the original language, it means to discard or remove. And in place of that, we are to receive or put on the implanted word, referencing the truth of the gospel, which has the ability to save our souls. The gospel that we have received is supposed to transform us from our old selves into a new creation, into our new selves. And this portion of scripture has striking parallels with other parts of scripture. 
note takers get ready. Ephesians 4, 21 through 24. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirits of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, and true righteousness and holiness. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to receive this gospel, but that is not the end game. It is supposed to transform us into something else. It's supposed to inspire us to act on what we believe. How many times have you seen it in others? Someone proclaims that they are a Christian, but there is no there is no progress. There is no advancement. So they come to church every Sunday, or they use Facebook or any other platform that's available to them to shout to the mountaintops, I am a Christian. But whenever it actually comes time to do God's word, to roll your sleeves up, to sacrifice, to be taken out of a position of comfort, they're nowhere to be found. It's a ghost town. I often think of a person that's floating in the middle of a pool and the water's completely stagnant and still. You know those pool floaties that people you know, sit on the middle of a, of a pool. They have a nice little summer drink, they're wearing their sunglasses, they're soaking up uh, the sun and just enjoying it. And the water's completely stagnant still and they're in a position of comfort. And they will invite others into the pool as long as they don't compromise their position of comfort, as long as they don't make waves. And if anybody were to threaten them, if anybody were to come up to the edge of the water and threaten to make them uncomfortable, they'll say, don't do that. You're going to cause waves. Perhaps if we are brutally honest with ourselves, we can admit that at least at times we are like this in certain seasons. If this is you, here comes the cannonball into the water. James says that if you are a hearer and not a doer, if you are a person that only soaks up and never produces, you are deceiving yourself. You think that you are something that you are not. If you are to proclaim that we are a Christian, we are to be doers. We have some good imagery here with the man in the mirror. Honestly, I don't have a lot to add to the department. Just interpreting it. Uh, I believe what James is trying to say here when he's talking about a man looking intently in the mirror is remember who you are. Think about it. Whenever we look into the mirror, we get a really good look at ourselves. And if we're in Christ, we can be reminded of things like we are redeemed. God has saved us. He loves us. But he's also given us a purpose. So if we look into the mirror, remind ourselves of everything that we are, and then we turn away and do nothing, we are deceiving ourselves. However, if we remind ourselves of these things, and then we do what we are called to do, we will be blessed in our doing. That's a promise in Scripture. If you are a doer of God's Word, you will be blessed in your doing. And we should take comfort in that. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned that works are absolutely integral to our faith, meaning that they are intertwined, they are not separable. Allow God's word to emphasize this point for us now. I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 2 in James, and I'm going to start with verse 14. Please follow along with me. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith and works are inseparable. They're inseparable. This is what James is drawing our attention to when he talks about the poor believer. These people have a very basic need. I mean, I would consider clothes and food to be at the bottom of my list of needs. Wouldn't you guys agree? These are very basic needs. However, they choose not to supply these needs for them. It's clear that they can provide them one. Otherwise, why would James be bringing it up to begin with? However, they choose not to give to the poor. It is clear that Jesus commanded them to care for the poor. Matthew 5, 42 says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. Yet they choose to disobey the command because it will cost them something. Are they really Christians if they willingly decide not to follow God's word? To just throw it to the side? Their faith without actions is dead, is what James is saying. It is fruitless, it's meaningless, it's robbing. Let's say it's a wonderful day at the park, and I will pick three couples at random, how about the Wilsons, the Noel Kings, and maybe the Hendricks. So they're walking around Great Park, it's a lovely day, it's perfect weather, the breeze is coming through, they're having wonderful discussion, and as they turn a corner, they see a big tree, and on this tree there's a big wooden sign nailed to it, and on this sign it has big red bold letters painted into it, and the sign says, if you can run a lap around Great Park in under 10 minutes, you will be rewarded $10,000. A camera's watching you, your time starts now. What do you think is the tangible evidence of those that believe in that sign and those that don't? The ones who believe will take off spring. They'll leave the others in the dust. Diana wants that $10,000. See ya. That is the tangible evidence that she has faith to begin with in that sign. In a similar fashion, our action in response to our faith is proof positive that we are Christians to begin with. This is not a one-off here in the book of James. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's just James. You know, he was a little kooky. I can assure you that this is referenced several times by several authors in scripture. For instance, John in 1 John 2, 3 through 6 says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word and him truly the love of God is perfected by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Peter, in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, lists the qualities of the Christian walk. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Peter continues, For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Jesus Christ says in John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. These are just a few examples that I drew up. I'm sure that you can find several more. All are in agreement. Action and response to our faith is proof that we are disciples of Christ. We are what we say we are. At times, Christians can be tempted to ask themselves a very difficult question. How do I know I am saved? Have you ever asked yourself that question? 
question. How do I know for certain that I'm saved? And if you ask another brother or sister, oftentimes they'll point to you accepting Jesus Christ for saved or being baptized or being plugged in the church. But oftentimes we pass up on asking, are you producing fruit in your Christian walk? This is overlooked. Can you look at your life and see progression from the time that you were saved? Is there tangible evidence through action that reveals that you care about the things of God, that you are pursuing His will for your life? Or is there no difference at all from when you were saved? Is your only proof that you are a Christian you constantly announce it? I pray for not only myself, but for each and every one of you in here that people would know that you're a Christian without you having to say a word. That the love of God would be experienced through you so powerfully that people know that there's something different about you. You don't have to proclaim that you're a Christian. You're a following Christ if you are a doer of God's word. People will know and they will be drawn to it. I've discussed two incentives for us to make sure that works are an integral part of our Christian law. The first was blessing, as I said in James. God promises that we will be blessed in our doing, so why would we not do it? The second is that we have tangible evidence and assurance that we are followers of Christ to begin with. We have proof, if we produce proof, that we are disciples of Christ. And the third incentive is the consequence of stagnancy. The consequence of stagnancy. About a month ago, youth group and I went over the parable of talents. If I'm honest with you guys, this parable probably out of all terrifies me the most. Many of you know this. One servant's given five talents, another two, and then the last one's given one. The first two that receive the talents, they do something with it, they invest. But the last one takes his talent and he hides it, he buries it. And then whenever the master returns, he digs it back up and presents it back to his master, saying, I know that you are a hard man, reaping where you did not sow. I kept it, I preserved it. Here, take what is yours. And what does the master say that I serve? You wicked and slothful servant. And then he cast him out into outer darkness with a weeping and gnashing of teeth. That should terrify us. What have you done with the opportunities that have been given to you? God has given you so much. He's given you grace. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you so many opportunities. But what have we done with it? A doer of God's word is one that continues to strive after the things of the Lord. Otherwise, we run the risk of being stagnant, of not progressing, or just hiding our faith altogether. And judging by the parable of talents, that is a very scary place to be. I hope at this point in the sermon you have come to the realization that we are called to an active faith, not a passive one. We are called to be viewers of God's Word. Works are a byproduct of the faith that has been placed in us. If we truly have faith, we are to act. Some of you may be asking for the first time in six months, a year, or even ever, have I really been an active follower of Christ? Have I really been a doer of God's work? Have I been doing the things that God has called me to? Or have I just remained stagnant? And if you are feeling the weight of that this morning, I would encourage you that you can turn that ship around and repent. That you might be asking, how do I even begin? How do I even start? How do I shift my mentality? from being stagnant and being a doer of God's work. Well, I have three suggestions for you um, that should certainly help the transition. The first is you spend time in prayer. Spend time in prayer. Mark eleven twenty four. 24. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. We must seek God's help through prayer. He is able to not only change us, but he is also able to sustain that change. But be honest and mindful whenever you are asking. Yes, it's very good to pray in groups, but it's also good to pray alone. So whenever you're most vulnerable, what are you asking God for? I'm ashamed to admit before you today that a prayer that I had years ago was an opportunity to share the gospel or to glorify God. I would ask for opportunities. That is quite possibly the dumbest prayer I think I've ever prayed. Because opportunities are everywhere. They're everywhere. Just open your eyes. Everybody is in need of God's grace. So many people within our community uh, need the truth of the gospel. And every single moment is a chance to glorify God by our actions, by how we treat others, by what we say, by what we think. Opportunity is everywhere. What I really meant whenever I said, God, can you give me an opportunity? I said, I should have said, God, will you give me a law? I want somebody to walk up to me on the street today and say, hey, do you know about this Jesus fellow? Because I just heard something small. I'd like to know more. Can you tell me? That's not going to happen. Rather, I should have been praying for uh, strength, courage, to stand firm upon his word, to be bold. Opportunities everywhere. God has already given us plenty of opportunity, but what are we doing with it? Be open and honest in your prayers. That was the first suggestion. The second would be to spend time in Scripture. Spend time in God's Word. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 states, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. In order to be effective at being doers of God's Word and His will, we have to know for certain what God's Word says. What is His will? We need to equip ourselves with God's Word. This is our guiding line. This lays it all out for us. When I was in college, I took a psychology class in my freshman year. And I'm going to be honest with you, uh, in high school, I wasn't a go-getter. I mean, I made A's, B's, and C's, but I never really applied myself. I'm sure the heritage attests to this. But... Uh, so I just kind of skated by. So on my freshman year in college, I took a psychology class, and I was thinking, this is going to be the same old song and dance. I'm just going to go in here, and I'm going to have to pay attention. I'm sure I'll pass the class. Well, I show up to this class, and I kind of take notes a little bit. First test comes, and I get it back, and I got a big old fat head. I mean, a huge, like a 30% or something. So I said, okay, I really got to start getting in gear here. So I start paying attention a little bit more. I take diligent notes. I'm paying attention about as much as I previously had. Um, and I got the second test back, and I got another F. It was a little bit better, maybe like 40% or something, but I still failed the test. So I said, okay, I'm really going to put some effort into this. So I started writing down verbatim everything that the professor was saying. I looked like I was having a panic attack whenever I just missed one word. What did he say? I was freaking out. So I wrote everything that he said, and then I studied it. I mean, hard. I looked over the notes for hours, poured myself over them. And then I took the test, and I got it back, and I got a D. What is going on here? Where is the disconnect? So my friend that I was taking with, her name is Jimmy, she was sitting next to me, and I noticed she was getting A's and B's on her test. And I'm thinking, what? What am I doing wrong here? So I asked her, I said, clearly there's a disconnect somewhere. I am not, I mean, I'm pouring everything I have into this. I'm writing down everything this guy's saying, I'm still failing these tests. What are you doing differently? And she smiles, and she says, have you looked at the study guide in the book? I said, no. And then she said, well, that's what the test takes on. 
So this coop was up here talking for hours, and I'm writing down everything he's saying. Everything he's saying is not even on the test at all. It was a study guide in the book that the tests were based off of. Listening to preachers and spending time on YouTube, listening to podcasts is great, isn't it? It can strengthen us and equip us. However, it is never a supplement for God's Word, ever. How do you know the things that I'm telling you up here today are true? You need to spend time in God's Word and see for yourself. Don't trust others. This is too important to spend time in God's Word. Preachers and, and podcasts and all that have their place, but they are definitely not a supplement for God's Word. Scripture often equips us with what we need. Jesus' is teaching and His commands, assurance, our purpose. In order to be doers of God's Word, we must know what God's Word says Spend time in Scripture. First one was spend time in prayer. Second, spend time in Scripture. Third suggestion I have for you this morning to become a doer is to become a doer. Make that commitment. Make it up in your mind that you are going to be a doer of God's Word. Change your mindset. Commit. How many Christians can actually say that they spend time in God's Word and they set it down and say, whatever you show me today, God, I'm going to act on it. It might be a little bit messy. It's certainly not going to be perfect, but I will be a doer of your word. I'm not going to remain stagnant. I think that we all be afraid to admit that that's probably a rare quality. However, that could be you. That could be us at the church. I got a short uh, kind of test in the passage here. Matthew 29, 19 says this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You guys are really going to like this, okay? Did you know that Matthew 29, 19, whenever it says to go and make disciples, in the original text, in the original language, what it actually means is to go and make disciples. You do not need a seminary degree to interpret Scripture. We have a tendency to over-theologize all these points and then just never act on it. We never do anything. We just talk about it. Well, what's your stance on this or that? But then we miss the opportunity to actually act on what we believe to begin with. Don't get caught up in that rub. I'm going to say something that maybe not a lot of preachers or pastors say. The Bible is often very easy to understand. It's often very difficult to follow. It's taxing. It costs us. You think that I might be off on this. I think I might be way out of my field. Okay. Here's a little test. Next time that you are with a group that you trust, this could be maybe your guys' a small group, maybe you have coffee with an individual once per week, or men's group. Be around people you trust, and then ask two questions. The first is, Matthew 29, 19 says to go and make disciples. You know that's in there? And then they'll probably say yes. And you say, when is the last time that you've actually shared the gospel? If you're with people that you trust, I hope that they will be open and vulnerable. And then you share with them in the last time was. I think that we're going to be shocked to find out that that is rare. It's rare. Now, oftentimes, whenever we feel the weight and the conviction, there's that awkward moment. And a lot of times we alleviate that awkward moment with humor or we make excuses. I would challenge you not to do that. Rather, I would ask you to examine yourself and understand that there's probably a disconnect somewhere. If you are saying that you are a Christian, you need to be sharing the gospel. And this is just one little portion of scripture that I pulled out. I'm sure that you guys can think of several others. But make sure that you are following God's word. Following Christ often comes with personal sacrifice. In fact, it is an art of self-sacrifice. More of him, less of us. 
Why do you think Jesus said for us to consider the cause? I did not come to bring peace but the sword. The path, the earth. These things should weigh on us, and we should understand that it is difficult. It is challenging. We need to understand and recognize that. However, the reward of doing so is far greater than anything you can face on earth. So, maybe some of you are saying, well, these three suggestions are great, Zach, but what book should I start with? Well, I'll tell you, the book of James is probably a really good place to start. There's so much rich application in this, not only for our church, but for every church. Do you show partiality? Do you put others on a pedestal while you treat others like garbage? Do you bridle your tongue? Do you pay attention to what you're saying, or is it a forest fire that's out of control? There's several other points of application. It's so rich, but we have to be viewers of it and examine ourselves and then commit to doing it.